Some of you are familiar with the popular Broadway play, Les Mis. Any Les Mis uh, fans here? Lots of fans. Good. Uh, it means the miserable ones or the poor ones. Setting is in France and uh, Fontaine. Is that how you say her name? Fontaine? She's one of the main characters, and she is a miserable, poor one. It's a tough story to see her, her life. And she starts out, and she has a great summer with a lover, but it ends suddenly. She's left with a child, so she's by herself trying to raise the child. She's trying to make money in a factory and gets kicked out of the factory. And then um, she has to end up resorting to prostitution as a way to make money. And then this powerful moment where she has this locket that she has to sell and she cuts her hair for money. And in the end, she ends up dying. But one of the most powerful songs in the play is a a song that you may be familiar with, I Dreamed a Dream. And here are just a few lines from the song. I dreamed, this is Fontaine, Fontaine now singing. I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. But there are dreams that cannot be. And there are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. This is a closing life. Now line. Now life has killed the dream I dream. Life has killed the dream that I had dreamed. And she had lost all hope. There was a point in her past that she was hopeful. So she had this dream and she, she, even though she was in a difficult spot, she felt like there was some chance of escape. But here she is at the nearing the end of her life. And as she's looking back and looking forward, she realized that the dream that she had about her life, this life that she's lived has killed that dream. And when you, when you lose all hope like she has, Life begins to shut down, and it did for her in the play. The first century church is a time of, uh, you might say, miserable times if you lived in the first century church. Church historians and just historians in general call this the age of martyrdom. The first 300 years of the early church was uh, a lot of hostility towards the church, not not only coming from the Roman government, but there's a lot of hostility in the culture in general. So it's marked by a lot of uh, Christians losing their lives during the first 300 years of the establishment of the church. You, you can see, you can get a sense of it just by reading through First Peter. Every chapter has a verse or more about suffering. Chapter 1, verse 6. Now for a little while you may have to suffer grief of all kinds. Chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Chapter 3, it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
chapter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Chapter 5, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So, so Peter is the leader of this church. It's just beginning. It's a church under a lot of heavy persecution. He understands that the, the, the hostility is coming, coming not only from the government, it's coming from the, the culture as well. And, and he's well aware that these pressures that are coming to bear on his congregants could cause his congregants to, to lose hope. And so Peter is such a great pastor. He understands it. He understands that feeling himself. He understands the pressure that comes as he's standing there trying to lead a church. He knows the kind of pressures his people are under. So he he writes this letter and he begins the letter. Really, this first half of chapter one is just a a chapter of hope, a, a chapter of encouragement. As we saw last week, and so important, the, the very first thing Peter wants to do in this, with this weary congregation is he wants to, he wants to cement the, their, their hope in the, 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 their, their salvation and their situation in the eternal foreknowledge of God. In, in other words, Peter's trying to help them understand that God knows where they are. He's planted their, them for, there for a particular purpose and a particular time. And then in verse 3, he just explodes into this praise for God. And then he goes forward by just trying to pump life into his weary listeners. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. You, you hear him? Born into a living hope. He's just trying to pump encouragement into this congregation who is battered on every side. And that's what we see here in the, these opening verses. And it may be this morning. I'm sure it is with at least a few you kept you came here feeling like your life was more like Fontaine's. You had dreams. But this life has killed the dreams you dreamed. And you may be sitting here saying, I, I feel like I don't have much hope. All the things I had hoped for, all the things I was investing in, they, they, they've all gone away. And I'm, I'm searching for hope. And Peter wants to, to address you specifically today. He wants to pump that living hope back into your weary soul. So that's what we want to see in the course of what we look at this morning. Peter's very careful in these opening verses. He's crafting something very specifically to those, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. He's, he's appealing to his congregation. He's saying, remember, remember you are where you are according to the, the carefully laid plan of God. Your current situation, your current location, your current suffering, they're not a waste. You may not understand it right now, but God is strategically using this situation to, to bring you into his image, to do something that maybe you can't see right now. 
And then he explodes here, this probably in your, your version, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that little exclamation point at the end. And we just sort of read through it. But, I, but if Peter were here, I think he'd be the charismatic Peter. Bless, I mean, he's just trying to shout this out. Blessed be God. That's, I want that to ring out across everything that I say. I, I want you to understand the importance of this. I don't want you to just read through it and get to things that you're supposed to work on. I want you to see this thing as a, a trumpet. I want you to see this as a, a banner over everything else that I say. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just notice what he's saying. Praise be to God for Jesus. In other words, thank God for God. I mean, what I'm doing is I'm telling God, I'm just glad you exist. That's the thing that's above all things in my life. The, th- the fact that you exist, I, no, matter my, no matter my current situation, no matter my current suffering, I can live if, if you're alive, if you're real. And I'm just going to say, God, thank you for being God. Now, now I can live underneath that banner. That's, that's the controlling thought for Peter. That's not the only thought that he has, but that's the one that he spreads across all of their thoughts, all of his situation, which is why, if you look in chapter one, verse 13, when Peter begins to make this transition in the text to things that he's going to help you with and know how to live your life. Notice the very first thing he says, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. OK, what action? He's given me this. He's put me in this concrete. Now he's saying, now you've got to prepare your mind for action. What's that action? And then he tells you. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You've got to prepare your mind for action that the end goal, and it is coming like a freight train, is Jesus Christ. Now that you have that set in mind, then you can live the rest of your life appropriately. I remember when... um, I was in Kenya when I was on my sabbatical. I was in Kenya. I was sitting in the front row, which was just a little wooden pew. And I said something about this last week, just to sit in this mud hut. It's kind of stuffy. A rooster is crowing. There's a little window that's behind the, the pastor right here. And I was looking through the window and the whole area just looked like a garbage dump. But this one particular area that was the, the, the where you look through looked like the, the garbage dump in the garbage dump. So it's just trash and just stuff blowing around, not a good smell coming through the window. And they had this moment in the service that you could just sort of pray or praise or something. And the pastor, he's up there and he's standing sort of near this window. And I'm sitting here looking out this window and he's just saying, God, I thank you for being God. I'm so glad I'm a child today, a child of God today. I'm so happy to be part of your kingdom and part of your plan. And I'm sitting there looking out this window going, I'm not that happy. And I'm, this is one moment for me. This, this, for him, this is his parish. This is his church. And I wondered how often I or maybe you sat in this place 
and you looked out the window into a relatively beautiful setting. And because of your circumstances, you couldn't pray. You couldn't praise. See, because the controlling thing in in your life, the banner that speaks in your mind the loudest is what's happening circumstantially in your life. And see, he was able to lift me up and say, by not not saying it, but just saying say, saying it out. You know, the most important thing is God. And because I have God, even though I'm in this little mud hut and outside is a dump, I can still praise God. And yes, I've got difficult circumstances that need to be addressed. But I want to make sure that my congregation understands the people who live in this slum. The banner over everything is God, that he exists, that he's in control. One writer made this comment about this passage. Whatever brings forth the loudest praise exposes what you value the most. Whatever brings forth your loudest praise exposes what you value the most. And it's very possible to be focused on the wrong things. It's very possible to be to it's very possible for the gifts to replace the giver. And so my question as we get started is what what's the controlling thought in your mind? What what gets the loudest shout out for you? Is it a circumstantial thing or is it God? What's the focus of your prayers? Do you begin with yourself? Or do you begin like Peter does? He begins with God. Well, Peter does a good job to reorient us. And when we look at this, I want to focus on this idea of hope, which is in the text in verse 3, a living hope. And I want, us, I want us to see it from three different ways. The importance of a living hope, the basis of our living hope, and then hope and an inheritance. The importance of a living hope. Peter Davids in his commentary on First Peter writes this. Peter doesn't focus on the new birth itself, but on the future. Pastorally, this future orientation is important because the suffering people who see pain ahead need to be able to pierce the dark clouds and fasten onto a vision of hope if they're to stay on track. See, Peter understands there's dark, dark clouds. They're not going away. And I need to give hope that that has a future orientation, a future vision. Some of you might be familiar with the writings of a uh, Jewish writer named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was uh, a psychiatrist who lived through the concentration camp and the Holocaust of World War II. Imagine being a Jewish psychiatrist in a concentration camp. And, of course, once that got out, lots of people would come and ask him questions. How do I, how do I have hope? How do I move forward? And after he survived, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And just listen to some of his comments from his experience or reflection on his time in the concentration camp. Any attempt at fighting the camp's psychological influence on the prisoner had to aim at giving the prisoner an inner strength by pointing out to him a future goal to which he could look forward to. The prisoner who lost his faith in the future was doomed. When he lost his faith in the future, he lost his spiritual hold 
Usually this happened quite suddenly, the symptoms of which we were all familiar with. And we all feared this moment. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed or wash or to go out on the parade grounds. No blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there. He simply gave up and nothing bothered him anymore. And then he gives an example of when this happened. He has a a person over him in his block. He's called the senior warden. And Frankel writes about his senior warden. He confided in me one day. He told me of a strange dream where he believed the war would be over for him on March the 30th. Frankel said the warden seemed full of hope that his dream would come true until the time drew closer and it became apparent the war war would not end. On March the 29th, the warden suddenly became ill. He ran a high temperature. On March the 30th, the day of his prophecy, told him the war would end, he lost consciousness. On March 31, the warden was dead. To all outward appearances, he had died of typhus, but Frankel knew this man had died because of a loss of hope. You see, the life had killed the dream he dreamed. And when life kills the dream you dream, when you lose hope, you begin to fade as well. And in a cruel way, the concentration camp magnifies or intensifies the loss of of everything you would base your life on. I mean, really, when you think about it, when you get to a concentration camp, as horrible as it is, what it does, it just strips you you of everything that you have, everything that you would put your hope into. It takes that away. But over the course of life, that happens to a lot of people, does it not? All the beauty... I invested in. It doesn't take long to realize that's fading away. Your health, it fades away. People that you thought you could trust, people that you thought were going to be around forever, they, they don't stay forever. Even your own life, it, it eventually fades away. And so everybody reaches some point in their life where they say, what is my ultimate hope? Can, can it pierce through the dark clouds that are on my horizon? Can it reach through into some future? And if it can't, then you begin to lose hope. Let's say that Nancy, my wife, put her ultimate hope in me. Which she doesn't, I'm thankful to say. But let's just say she did. Well, it, 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 it doesn't look too good for Nancy. Because you could go back to my office right now and you could pick up a picture that I have on my shelf of the two of us the day we got married. It's just a few minutes after our marriage. We got married. We walked out back. We did a little greeting thing and somebody just snapped sort of a candid shot of us that turned out to be, you know, like one of those good pictures. So I've got it up there. But you could go back there and say, Nancy, it doesn't look good for you. He doesn't look quite the same as he did. He's fading away. (laughs) But see, that's what happens. If if you have your ultimate hope in something that's going to fade away, you're going to fade away. 
And Peter knows that, so he's trying to pump in this living hope where people are losing everything else that they had counted on in their life except for Jesus. And when, when you as a believer, you begin to have a hope when there is chaos, then Peter says this, people are going to come by you in chapter 3, verse 13, 15, they're going to come by and they're going to say this. Can you give me a reason for the hope that is in you? It's not just an apology for Jesus about, well, who is he compared to other gods? It's No, no, no. You're, you're going through suffering, and yet even in the midst of the suffering, you have a hope. And that's what I want to tap into, because I don't have that hope. And people are going to see you have that hope. And look, if you don't go through dark moments, if you don't go through moments you think you can't make it, then when the people that next to you go through those moments and they come and ask you how you get through it, you're not going to be any help, are you? Well, I don't know. My life's a bowl of cherries. It's not. So, so God has fashioned particular times, particular circumstances, particular sufferings for you to shape you into his image. And also so when other people are going through that, they say, hey, you still had hope. And can you give me a reason for the hope that you had in the middle of your suffering? So... You need a living hope. And if you're here and you don't know Christ is your Savior, I, I would just ask you to ask yourself this question. What, what do you have your hope in? And if it goes away, are you doomed? The basis for our living hope, Peter says in Verse 3, the basis of our living hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, just think about this. When was it in Peter's life, you know this, when was it in Peter's life that he lost all hope? It was a Friday afternoon. He had already blown it the night before, thinking he, by his own self-determination or his bravery or his courage or bravado, that he could make it, and he knew he couldn't make it because he blew it, right, at a campfire. A little girl came up and said, are you with Jesus? No, I never heard of Jesus. So his hope in himself had died, but now on this Friday, what's happening? He's standing at a distance, he's looking outside the gates of Jerusalem on a hill, and his ultimate hope, Jesus, is slowly dying on a cross. So Peter, all the dreams that he had dreamed died at this point on a Friday. Whether it was himself or whether it was in this person he'd been following for the last three years, he had lost all hope. Now, what gives Peter a living hope? What pumps life back into Peter? What, what pumps life back into Peter is an empty tomb. You remember in Mark chapter 16, Mary goes down to the, the empty tomb. She meets an angel, and the angel says, oh, the person you're looking for, he's not here, he's arisen. Go tell the disciples and, what does it say? And Peter. Isn't that fascinating? Go tell the disciples and really tell Peter. 
Because I know he had lost all hope. All the dreams that he had dreamed got crushed 48 hours ago. And I want you to make sure he knows that he has a living hope that Jesus is going to meet him. In John chapter 20, Jesus, when the disciples are gathered together, he comes into the room. And he shows him his hands and his feet and his side. And he says, peace. Peace be with you. And then he, he breathes on the disciples. And they're born again. They're brand new people. So Peter understands what it means not to have a living hope. But he's trying to tell the people, you should have a living hope because Jesus has actually conquered death and now he can't be conquered anymore. It's an unshakable hope that now Peter has. And there's so many ways that this... Imagine how many different ways this could have affected Peter's life. This moment. And I want to just mention one way. It utterly reshapes Peter's definition of his past. This, this one encounter reshapes Peter and completely redefines his past. Have you ever noticed how frequently your past reaches into your present and strangles hope? So often a past sin, a past failure, a past relationship will reach in. And define who you are. Hey, you're defined what, by what happened back there. Remember that? That's who you are. That, that thing that happened five years ago or 25 years ago, that, that's, you're defined by that. And it tells you, your past often tells you, and you can't be any more than that. So often our past defines who we are in our present and says to us, you can't be any different also in the future. How, how many of you here, without raising your hand, know somebody who's stuck living in the past? Something happened at a critical moment. And even though time kept going, and this person's now 44, they're still living like they were 14. Because they got stuck at a critical moment and they never could really get past that moment. Their past is defining their present and is defining their future. If Jesus hadn't returned to the dead from the dead, how do you think Peter's life would have been defined? By Friday. Yeah, at the critical moment, I blew it. He would have never been able to get through that. But he's saying, no, but, but, but I've met the living Savior. Sunday has come. And, and now every day was changed for Peter as he went forward because he had this living hope. He understood the angel said, go back and tell Peter. Jesus is saying, tell Peter I'm coming for Peter. Tell Peter I'm going to bring living hope back into his broken soul. Tell Peter what's going to define him now from now on is not his failure in the past, but my victory over death. You see, if you're a, a Christian this morning, then you've been redefined. Your past has been redefined. And the most defining moment in your past now is what Jesus did on the cross. Not what you did. 
It completely redefines your past. So the most important thing now is not my sin, but my sin that has lost its grip on me because of what Jesus has done. And now I I work out my future based on what Jesus has done, not based on what I've done. So critical that we understand the basis of our living hope. And finally, number three, hope in our inheritance. Look at verse 4 and 5. We, we are, we've been given this living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When you, when you have an inheritance, you know what that is. It's a, it's a transfer because you're in the right family of assets or wealth. And so my daughter, Morgan Rebecca Phillips, she's the beneficiary of being born into the family of Paul Morgan Phillips. And one day when I die, she will receive an inheritance. Right now that's looking like a 12-year-old car and I'm $100, so... Uh, and a college education, so let's make that work. Um, but you see what happens? She has, she has the name, Phillips. And she's going to receive an inheritance. You have a name. You, you've bowed your knee to the name that is above every other name. You've been completely redefined, and now you're part of the family of God, and you're going to have an inheritance. And that Peter wants him to under, wants his congregation to understand. I, I want you to see that that inheritance shapes what you think about the future, and then it redefines how you think about today. Because you have that inheritance; it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading in its value and glory. Now, my question this this morning when I got to this place was, well, what is that inheritance? In the Old Testament, if you go back, the inheritance is always what? Land. You're going to get land. You're coming out of Egypt. You're coming out of slavery. You're claiming coming out of bondage. And you're going to get land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I think Peter has some connectivity to that, that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And so you're going to receive that as an inheritance. But I think there's something more powerful or greater than just that that he's thinking about. The inheritance just isn't land, a location, but the inheritance is glory. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So we inherit God's glory, which is very hard to describe, but it's at least the the beauty, majesty, holiness, purity, love, goodness, compassion, mercy, joy, wisdom, peace, righteousness, kindness, perfection, and splendor of God himself infused into you. I can't wait to see that in some of you. I can't wait to see it in myself. That all of God's glory is going to be infused into you. 
And you're going to retain your unique, your, your unique image. And yet you're going to have the weight of God pumping through you. And I know it's going to happen because this inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And not only is the inheritance unfading, but Peter says, and I know the power of God is going to get you to that inheritance. So God's going to keep the inheritance and he's going to keep you. Amen. I, I, I'm certain that there are people here that it feels like I've lost the dream I dreamed. What I thought was going to happen for my life, it's not going to happen. I was holding on to something or someone and they've left. And I know I can't get that something or someone back. Peter wants to pump life to say there's a living hope that you can have even in the midst of that sorrow. If you're one of those people, there'll be an elder up here after the service is concluded. And it may just be helpful to have somebody to pray with you and try to help you have a sense of God trying to minister to you this morning. What receives your loudest praise? What's the banner over your life? Do you have a living hope? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for a living hope. Thank you for Peter. Peter's ability to speak into people whose lives have been crushed, both from internal and external circumstances, and yet he still speaks a living word into our life. Lord, we pray that this message would take hold in our own hearts, that you would strengthen your people for the day and the weeks and the years to come. For those that don't know you, that today could be the day that they have a living, unfading hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.